You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The coronavirus doesn't seem to be backing down on its three-digit daily spread in the islands. Here on Oahu, the clusters of COVID-19 positive cases in workplace in the workplace are soaring. What can businesses do to keep their workers safe without impeding your rights? Can an employee sue their boss if they get sick? What is their liability? Kalani Morse is a partner at the law firm Durrett Lang Morse LLP and a board member of the Society for Human Resource Management, Hawaii Chapter. He spoke with the conversations Jason Ubai about workplace liability during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, obviously the number one concern that most employers have is, you know, can I keep my workplace safe and how do I do that? And, you know, what are the tools do I have at my disposal that, that I can use? And there are some fairly strict rules around, uh, you know, employees' health in the workplace and what an employer can and cannot do. And generally those rules would operate to prevent an employer from, you know, requiring medical tests or doing inquiries about an employee's health. But the Centers for Disease Control and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission have instituted uh, exceptions to apply during pandemics. They actually implemented these rules back during the H1N1 virus a number of years ago, and they have since reruled those rules and exceptions back out and updated them for COVID earlier this year. So normally, you would not be allowed to ask an employee about his physical or medical symptoms or require them to take a temperature test, for example. But those rules are sort of on hold due to an exception in the law that says during the COVID pandemic, you are allowed to do those things. And then, you know, if things do turn out that the employee has some sort of uh, symptom like a fever or coughing or sweating or other flu-like or COVID-related symptoms, the employer is allowed to send the employee home and keep them out of the workplace. And in many instances, might even be required to do so. But it is a tricky path for employers because on the one hand, you're trying to navigate employee rights on whether and how far you can go with requiring testing and keeping them in or out of the workplace. But also you're weighing that against protecting the employees who are in the workplace to protect them from someone who is potentially affected with COVID. So that's, I think, kind of a helpful background for employers to think, you know, what, what are the, what's the landscape and what, what issues am I trying to, and interests am I trying to balance here and keeping the workplace safe, keeping other people safe, while also trying to keep people productive and on the job. So what you'll see uh, out, in, out in the workplace, and you'll hear stories of, kind of cut both ways, right? On the one hand, you'll have an employer who's trying to keep an employee in the workforce and keep them productive. Meanwhile, you'll have another employer who's trying to keep employees out of the workplace and keep them out working remotely. And then on the other side, you have some employees who really, really want to come to the office or show up at work, and then you've got other employees who are asking to go home, and you pair those four scenarios up in all the various combinations, and those are all the scenarios you've got, and testing kind of falls right in the middle of all of that. So just to be clear, can't require testing, but it sounds like it's working with each employee to see what they're comfortable with, and it has to be all voluntary on the employee side. It does not have to be all voluntary. If you have an employee, if the employer decides they want to require temperature checks before employees come into the workplace, they are allowed to do that during the COVID pandemic. And the testing does need to be 
uh, restricted to COVID-related issues. If an employee knows that they've been exposed and an employer asks other employees to please get tested because one of their employees got infected, would other employees have to take a test? So are you asking whether the other employees, the employer can require the other employees to take a test? Yes. Without showing symptoms? Yeah, just from exposure. That's that's a little bit of a tricky one where you're asking the employee to take a test when you know they've been exposed. Now, I, I think I think if an employee does report that they are exposed, or excuse me, not exposed, but that they're positive, right? So an employee comes back and reports to the employer, I've got a positive test and I've been working in the, you know, the office with three other people in close proximity, I think the employer could require those other employees to go get tested, you know, particularly if they're showing symptoms. That if they weren't showing symptoms, you know, we now know enough about the asymptomatic transmission of this disease to warrant concern on the employer's part to say that, you know, folks probably ought to get tested because, you know, they've been exposed. It sounds like there's been more clusters related to workplaces, restaurants, and it seems a lot of employee and staff have been getting infected. How does that affect workers' comp? That one's tricky, and then right now it's being sort of handled on a case-by-case basis. We have, for example, a number of healthcare clients who are wrestling with this issue, right, because those are the frontline workers who are, you know, they know for a fact that they are directly exposed to COVID-positive patients as a virtue of their job responsibilities. But nonetheless, there's, it's almost impossible to determine whether or not those employees, you know, went out on the weekend to a restaurant and caught the virus there as opposed to picking it up at work, right? And, in fact, some employers are, you know, trying to assert that, well, you know, when you are at work, you're wearing your personal pr- protective equipment and you're taking all the required precautions. So even though you're around these COVID-positive patients, there's a good chance that you did not catch it at work, and that's some of the positions that have been taken in the recent past. However, there's just not enough evidence that, you know, goes along with a positive test to truly determine, you know, exactly where it came from. So as of today, it still falls upon each employer and employee to assert their positions in the work comp claims process. Right. So an employee can go in and report the claim and say, I was infected at work. And the employer, uh, you know, if, if they have some evidence to indicate that that's not the case, you know, for example, if everyone in the office was tested and nobody actually has COVID or test positive for COVID or COVID antibodies, there could be, you know, a, a work comp claims process whereby it's looking at, you know, the, the lack of evidence of COVID in the workplace versus the employee's claim that he, picked it up, he or she picked it up in the workplace. But as of now, there's no, not that we're aware of, any blanket ruling or change to that process. You know, in every work comp claim, there's a determination of whether or not the injury was indeed a work injury. And that's a case-by-case situation. You know, I think if an employee has a lot of proof that, you know, hey, everyone else in the office has COVID and I worked there with them and now I have it too, I think it's still going to be hard for that employee to prove that they did not come into contact with someone with COVID anywhere else in the rest of their lives unless they're living in the office 24-7.
So it's still a bit of a murky area, and you know, work comp claims are going to proceed on the case-by-case analysis, as they always have. Outside of workers' comp, could an employee sue a workplace if they felt that that's where they, they were exposed and became infected with the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, like we always tell folks when they ask, there's nothing to stop anybody from suing anyone in most cases. There are a small handful of cases where you are not allowed to sue people for certain things, usually involving the government in very select areas. But someone can always file a claim against an employer asserting that the employer um, failed to take necessary precautionary measures. And again, there I think the employee would have a fairly significant burden to indicate that or to show to a judge or a jury that they indeed caught the virus at work and did not pick it up elsewhere in their life. I think in those cases, though, there is no qualified immunity as of yet. I know there have been a number of bills that have been considered and passed by other jurisdictions. I'm not yet aware of Hawaii having passed a qualified immunity bill that would protect employers from employees catching it in the workplace. Um, I think the best thing an employer can do to protect themselves is to adopt the Centers for Disease Control, you know, precautions and follow those rules in terms of making sure that their environments are as uh, COVID-free as possible, uh, tracking symptoms and testing, et cetera. It's where an employer requires employees to be in situations where it's challenging or tough for them to continue to be masked or social distanced and requiring them to be around folks who are exhibiting symptoms or may have had exposures and notice via contact tracing of exposures, those situations an employer wants to be cautious. I think every time an employer steps outside of those uh, recommended protocols, they are exposing themselves to a little more liability in terms of such such, such lawsuits uh, alleging that the employer was you know, negligent or reckless in the way they required employees to be around each other and expose themselves potentially to COVID-19 excuse me, the coronavirus. I know you mentioned that anyone can sue anyone. So would an employee be able to sue another employee if, say, someone came in and they were already sick and, you know, they failed to tell their employer and for various reasons needed to to come in to the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, there's no no stopping, you know, the the imagination of of folks to come up with various lawsuits that... uh, that they could sue uh, or file against one another. I think, uh, you know, as we always tell folks, you know, it's not about the fact that you're going to tell, you're going to get the judge to prove that you didn't do anything wrong. It's about all the time and expense and headache of getting to that point of having the judge tell you you're wrong. So again, if, if folks are concerned about potential risk, um, you know, and showing up in the workplace, uh, you know, if, if you're concerned about a coworker, potentially uh, filing a lawsuit against you for damages. And, you know, I think one concern there, you know, I think you can imagine a scenario where you have somebody who everybody is generally uh, aware of having been immunocompromised, Um, you know, maybe someone who's had a heart transplant or something like that, and then somebody knowing that they have the virus comes into contact with them, you know, fails to mask or social distance and fails to disclose to that person or anyone else that they're positive for the virus. You know, that's a that's a pretty tough set of facts. 
you know, and, and they could potentially, you know, have claims filed against them for reckless endangerment and other types of physical harm. Now, that would certainly be a novel case, but I imagine we'll probably see one <laughs> coming forward somewhere in the nation at some point in time. Is there anything else uh, you think listeners should know? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in general, the employers need to remember that the Americans with a Disabilities Act uh, law requires employers to go through uh, what's known as the interactive process, which means that, you know, blanket rules applying to coronavirus and, you know, exposure and um, are, are generally okay as long as they're evenly applied to everyone. But once, you know, for example, requiring folks to be tested, you know, you got to make sure you're not discriminating in who needs to get tested. You want to make sure it's based on rational and reasonable and uh, generally observable facts and, and events. So, you know, you want to make sure that more than one person agrees with you that, hey, I think so-and-so, you know, is showing symptoms and we ought to require them to, you know, have a temperature check or go get tested or tell them that they need to stay away from the office. Uh, those kinds of decisions should be, you know, cleanly documented and they should be done on a case-by-case basis. And, and, a, and a dialogue should be entered into with each employee about, you know, what accommodations are needed in order to, number one, get them the health care, you know, they need and the testing that they need, and number two, to protect everyone else in the office. And, and those discussions can lead in different uh, directions depending on the employee's situation, their job duties. Uh, you know, there's a fairly complex uh, analysis that needs to be undergone for each and every situation. If you just start applying blanket rules, that's where you get in trouble with the Americans with Disabilities Act in terms of making decisions about what an employee, a particular employee, can or cannot do where you're changing the terms and conditions of their job. That was Kalani Morris, a partner at the law firm Durrett Lang Morris, talking to the conversations Jason Ubai on the legal liability of employers during this COVID-19 pandemic. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Hawaii Pacific Health, U.S. Classic Guitar, and Aloha Air Cargo. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. What's true? Well, we can tell you about an effort to harness local tech innovators to help solve problems across our community. It stands for Technology Readiness User Evaluation. Michelle Chung is the director of the True Initiative, a brainchild of the Hawaii Executive Collaborative, which this week is highlighting the work underway. 
The TRUE is made up of private companies, the state, education, organizations, and we use it as a way to share different solutions to common business problems. And so in one of our meetings, we learned that one of the organizations is working with the airport on a solution. Another organization was looking to support Hawaiian contact tracing. And when we heard this, we felt that it would be an opportunity to share it even wider um, as Hawaii faces these challenges. So talk about the companies that are going to be involved in this. Absolutely. So the first one is Data House. Um, they're going to be sharing their um, surveillance and surveillance technology, um, thermography. And they also have a screening solution that they're working with um, UH on, and it's called Lumasite. What does that so do? That will be in the screening and surveillance area. What, what does that do? And so it actually allows you to check in every day. Um, there's a self-assessment with a series of questions. And all employees and students are going to check in on a regular basis. Um, and I think it brings awareness to make sure everyone is cognizant of how they feel and any symptoms they may have. And then the information will be monitored um, by a central um, location, a control center. Okay, so that's something that the University of Hawaii system is uh, looking to experiment with this fall? Adopt, they are. And so there's a press release out on it already, and they said that um, when classes start, that all students and faculty will be using this system to check in on a daily basis. And are these for students who have been tested and have a positive result, or just generally more broad? This is generally for everyone to use, and so it's really to assess their wellness or everyone's wellness before they arrive to the UH campus or off-campus facilities. Um, it's a free download. It's going to be, it is on the Apple Store and on the Google Play Store. And it's online for um, people who are going to visit UH as well. Okay, so that's Lumisite. What else do we have? Yeah, so that's one. Yep, the second one is a contact tracing app. And um, it is in the Aloha State family of digital contact tracing app. Um, and it's a way that Hawaii can improve the contact tracing. Um, it'll alert any individuals of potential exposures. And they have been working in partnership with DOH um, to better handle the contact tracing here in Hawaii. Is it something they're using now or something they are working on for future tracking? They're working on for the future. And um, the estimated date that it'll hit the app stores and is August the 30th. And it's, um, it's a couple of solutions. And you'll learn more about it at the event. But one is called Aloha Safe Story, and one is called Aloha Safe Alert. And they're based on different technologies. One uses the GPS, and the other one uses the Google and Apple Exposure Network through Bluetooth technology. And then the third one that we're looking at are tools that we can use to protect us when we go out a little bit. So I know that restaurants are still open. There are social distancing and transparency solutions out there. And there are a couple of different options. So one is manual interface, and then another one uses cameras and AI to tell you how many people are in a specific location, are there open seats, can the next person go in type of a, a solution. And I think that during this time, people are anxious to know, can I go to a restaurant and safely assume that, or safely know that they're following, following distance protocols? And for me, when I go, you actually have to walk over to the restaurant, see if there's a space. If there isn't a space, there's a wait outside. Some of these solutions will help increase the transparency of whether or not there's an opening at the restaurant. And if there is, you know, you can go ahead and go in. And this technology solution specifically will also allow you to grab a ticket so that if it's busy, 
you don't have to sit there and wait. You can there's a ticketing solution where you can walk away, do other things, and then come back. Gotcha. Virtual line. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Almost like Disney. It right. reminds so, me of like the fast pass at Disney. Yeah. The whole point is to avoid that physical presence you can plan ahead absolutely and so we think that some of these solutions all of them are are focused on how we can keep hawaii safe how we can each do our part in in protecting the people we care about people we love in hawaii as a whole and then there's also a component that's customer service with so the social distancing and transparency you can imagine how a customer may appreciate and be more aware of what protocols different companies are following when they welcome customers into their workplace. I know just walking around Ala Moana, you know, as an example, some stores have a queue and some of those lines are actually quite long. Yep. And then the other use case that we were thinking of is in condos. So the condos that do have their pools open, a lot of them are restricting it to five people in the water, 10 people in the water. I know for my condo, I would have to pack the kids up, go downstairs only to find that the pool is full. Imagine if there was transparency to how many people are in the pool or when the next slot is open. It just, um, aside from customer service, it would reduce a lot of headaches and like the anticipation of, you know, imagine telling a five-year-old and a six-year-old, oh, no, you can't go in the pool for an hour after they've gotten dressed <laughs> and uh, lathered up with um sunblock, yeah. Right, so this is a way for the condo associations to be able to manage the flow. Absolutely. What about maybe other business applications, let's say for office buildings? So there are a couple of tools. So the screening and surveillance one, the one that UH is using, is also relevant for office buildings. And we've been working on how we can collaborate to make people aware that certain organizations are taking precautions to protect people. So in the case of an office, you can imagine an organization adopting something like a Luma site. And there are other products out there to say, you know what, before you go into the office, check in. If you don't feel well, then, you know, HR is aware of it and they can action is needed. I think it's also a reminder when you're rushing around and going into the office and you do the check in and you measure your temperature or what or whatnot. It brings in awareness to that as well. You can imagine different locations, companies, restaurants, organizations saying that, oh, yeah, you know, we're Hawaii safe or there's a brand that says we're taking precautions to keep our Ohana safe. Okay, so if people want to find out more, you folks are hosting a webinar. Yes, so our webinar is on Tuesday, August 25th at 2 p.m. And I'm part of the true organization. We're a nonprofit with a mission to create tech-enabled jobs. We're an initiative, the Hawaii Executive Collaborative, and we really do this by trying to accelerate the adoption of technology. So we're technology agnostic, vendor agnostic, but we do want to highlight that there are technologies that can solve real business problems out there. And rather than everyone recreating the wheel and starting from scratch and starting to do their evaluations, we want to highlight some of the tools that we see that are in use out there. Um, to register, you can go to hec.org slash true, and that's Hawaii Executive Collaborative. So hec.org slash true, and you can register there. That was Michelle Chung, director of the True Initiative, talking about tomorrow's webinar that will highlight local tech companies working with innovative systems during these trying times. You can find links for the webinar on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org.
dismantling the post office, pardoning Susan B. Anthony, QAnon love. Headed toward Election Day, Trump offers many, many shiny objects. It's cliche to say this is a distraction, this is a distraction, but the end result is the same. We get distracted. Why it matters that we stay focused in a news deluge, listen to on the media from WNYC. Starting tonight at 7, following The Body Show. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about the release of numbers on COVID-19 positive cases within the military. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about the latest developments on our reality check. Good morning. Good morning and happy Monday, Catherine. Happy Monday. Now the headline for this story, military Mm. COVID-19 rates are public in Guam, Japan, and Korea. So why not Hawaii? Yeah, I, I would include Okinawa on that list. This is based on our reporter, Kevin O'Dell, who covers the military for us. And, you know, he opens this story uh, back at a time which seems like a lifetime ago, March 21st, right around the time things were getting pretty serious in regarding COVID and, and, and the uh, crackdown and whatnot. It opens with a town hall, one that was broadcast or streamed on Facebook, and it was an Army colonel here in Hawaii confirming that there were four cases uh, in the islands of COVID-19 among uh, among the troops and, and their family members. And then the defense secretary, Mark Esper, came down and said, no, 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 we're not going to be doing that anymore. We will only provide wide aggregate numbers. Uh, it'll have to come from the Pentagon. You cannot have local area commanders, at least here in Hawaii, reporting that. But yes, as Kevin makes clear, the numbers are reported in those areas where there are large numbers of U.S. service members and their families. So what gives? Why the the conflict? Now, in Guam, I contrast. Remember, right. In, <laughs> in Guam, they had that issue with the carrier uh, that, you know, sailed right. into and, port and, and they had, uh, you know, positive cases. Oh, yeah. Over a thousand, if I remember correctly. And there was even one death. The U.S. says Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, Guam has its own particular conditions. And just recently, as you probably well know, the governor and lieutenant governor uh, both uh, yes. were diagnosed with COVID. They're, they're doing OK, is my understanding. But in that case, it was actually the local government that reported those numbers. And those numbers on the, the Teddy Roosevelt were actually kept separate from, from Guam's numbers. But it has helped inform how... Uh, that island community responds and has tried to mitigate the virus. They pretty much are on a, a more serious lockdown, if you can imagine that, than even Hawaii, uh, in part because they're getting the, these accurate numbers from the military informing their decision-making. And you had mentioned also that uh, the numbers were released in places like Japan and Okinawa where the military presence is where can be sensitive. Yes, that's and that's a whole nother thing, and and of course the emphasis from the commanders is we very much need to respect the the you know we're visitors right in these countries, uh, but why not the same courtesy here? Kevin did actually check with a professor who teaches ethics at the U.S. Naval War College, and they said you know it it's like the Pentagon is hiding something. If you're not sharing those numbers, it really makes you suspicious. We should also point out that I mentioned that March report. Credit the Star Advertiser; they actually reported. Uh, not long ago, that there were about 204 cases involving the military. That's back when our total count here in the islands was under 3,000. If you can believe that, it was just about a month ago. Now, right now, I think we have well over 6,000 cases. I think it's closer to 6,500, maybe even surpassed that. But at the time, the Department of Health did confirm, yeah, that was accurate. But guess what, Catherine? That was a mistake. That information should not have been shared according to the military 
other than with internally with the commanders, but it got out and the Star Advertiser reported it. Department of Health confirmed the numbers. Right. And the situation, you know, we had the, the uh, Adjutant General give mm. the military families an exemption uh, from the uh, COVID-19 quarantine, right? Yeah, and that was a whole nother kerfuffle. It was actually helping some Coast Guard folks uh, at the request of the Coast Guard, but it got around that there were some exemptions to the quarantine for Guard personnel and their families. That didn't sit too well with the Army and the Navy, and General Hara later rescinded that. It took away that exemption. We should, by the way, note that the military, for those folks who don't know, really have huge numbers here in Hawaii, about nearly 10% of the state's population Kevin gives the figures of at least 43,000 active duty, add that uh, military dependents, about 60,000, another 9,600 National Guard, and then we're, we have to include the DOD civilians and contractors. So all told, something like 130 to 138,000 people, about 10% of the population. So wouldn't we want to know if some of that population was infected with COVID? And by the way, where they're going, just like we're trying to contact trace uh, civilians here in the islands. And you folks were the first, I think, to report about the the uh, Coast Guard request. And I believe right. the Army and the Navy said they were surprised when they got included <laughs> in that <laughs> Right. Exemption. It caught them by surprise. And I think that definitely led to the, the change in policy because it just seemed like a double standard. I, the way Kevin reported this, it wasn't anything, how shall I put it, um, it, w- it wasn't done to make anybody look bad, but it just ended up looking that way because it did, in fact, look like a double standard. How can you grant that to one branch of the military and not the others? And why why give a quarantine exemption at all to military personnel and their families? Right. And I know in the, with the schools that I've talked to, they were concerned because they want to know about, you know, when their uh, students, uh, you know, that come from military families, you know, they want to know if there's a positive case within the family but uh, I know they were they were working on that before the start of school so lots of things to track thanks Catherine by the way real quickly no comment from the Pentagon for this story okay (laughs) all right thanks so much (laughs) that was Chad Blair politics and opinion editor with today's reality check read Kevin Nodell's story about the military's COVID rates at civilbeat.org Tuesday on HPR2, it's the next in our Hawaii Symphony Orchestra broadcasts. It's a celebration of Beethoven's 250th anniversary when Oahu Choral Society sings under the direction of artistic advisor Joanne Folletta. Plus, we'll hear a moving performance of Tchaikovsky's Francesca de Rimini. Tuesday at 8 p.m. on HPR2, following evening concert. Sponsored by Furniture Plus Design. We continue to hear from you about classrooms as Hawaii's public schools shift to full distance learning this week. Chad Taniguchi from Kailua shared this. It may not be too late to put the DOE and the schools on the course of making the schools cool through natural ventilation, planting of trees, creating more window openings, shades, 
and so forth, so that for the long term and for global warming and for future pandemics, we can have students and teachers breathe the fresh, clean air of Hawaii and use air conditioning only as um, their last option and eventually uh, get them away because ventilation is possible if you spend the time, money, and energy doing it. And this is a good job now as we get out of the pandemic to convert the schools from air conditioning to open air. Should have been done in the first place. Thank you. And Allison McCooney from Palolo wrote in with suggestions to reduce the community spread of COVID-19. She thinks employers should stop requiring employees to draw down on vacation leave for employees who prefer to work from home and wait out this surge of COVID-positive diagnosis. It is morally wrong to force them to take vacation leave. Employers should allow their staff to telework without penalty and conditions. Use the CARES money to provide a twice-monthly dividend to people in the food service, tourism, and retail industries so that they don't have to put themselves at risk by taking on a lot of hours just trying to earn a few more extra dollars. Allow delivery persons, custodial staff, and others who have a set volume of work for the day to leave the work site and go home after they finish the work but still earn the full day's pay. So in other words, the employer uh, should uh, would not pay them by the hour but pay them the full day's wage for doing a full day of work. Thanks for the feedback, everyone. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line 这是《Planet 9》，和我一起探索宇宙。我们学习更多关于这个小行星，它的密度、质量、形状、等等。这是我们每周的一个小故事。这是我们每周的一个小故事。这是我们每周的一个小故事。这是我们每周的一个小故事。这是我们每周
And if such an object existed, where would it be? In that mysterious possible black hole that's the size of a coconut or whatever it is? <laughs> well, not quite in there. This enigmatic stellar companion would have formed at around 93 billion miles from the sun, which is around 1,000 astronomical units. But in the time since then, it has vanished. And is there any evidence of it left behind? There may be. The Oort Cloud, a vast collection of icy bodies located in the dark surrounding our solar system, may actually be a remnant of the combined gravitational action of the Sun and its long-lost siblings. The model suggests that only the combined gravitational might of the two stars could have captured such a large number of bodies. And if not that, then what do you think happened to it? Well, stars are born in clusters, usually containing a multitude of stars. And as they evolve, they grow apart, and it's possible that a passing star born in the same stellar nursery swept up our sibling in a gravitational embrace, and they both went waltzing off into the Milky Way galaxy, never to be seen again. It's good stuff. It's a great story. And uh, thanks for it, Chris. Christopher Phillips. Appreciate You're it. welcome, Dave. And we'll catch you next week with more Stargazer. And you can find it at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. We all know that the pandemic has shut down the state's economic driver, the visitor industry. Now, when travel restrictions were lifted in June, employment on the Garden Isle saw a small increase of 1% to 5%. But those numbers are down again after the partial inter-island travel quarantine was re-implemented on August 11th. Producer Lillian Song spoke with uh, Kauai's director of the Office of Economic Development about Kupa'a Kauai, an effort to make it easier for its residents looking for jobs. Here's Naladi Brun. We have a lot of our visitor industry basically counting on an opening on September 1. At this point, we also have a lot of the visitor industry that's not planning to open right away in September. They are going to wait to see what happens. And because of that, we have quite a few people out of work and pretty much going off their unemployment and the additional funds when they existed from, from the federal government. You know, off the tourism sector, you have all these people that are supported by tourism, everything from restaurants to, I mean, activities, even our local nonprofits, whether they're doing work like at Malamahuli'ia or Kumano Keala or many of the Hawaiian groups that are doing different things. They also have, many of them have elements of support coming in from the visitor industry. So, it touches everyone. I mean, it's not just directly them, but just the bulk of what's been hurting has been um, somehow related to the visitor industry. Um, our ag industry, amazingly, has been doing wonderful during this um, time. So that's been kind of a boon for us, just because we had so many types of federal monies like USDA and um, the different federal programs come in that we've been able to um, get money, not just the county government, but, but many other organizations have went and got, gotten the money and, of course, did that to try to keep pushing produce and things out to the different communities that are out there. A lot of people are really looking at our natural resources and ag, which is, you know, Kauai being the garden island. I mean, we're really all about keeping things as pristine and uh, natural as we can. And um, that is one silver lining during this whole thing is that we have been able to give Mother Nature a bit of a, of a nice deep breath during this time to try to realign and, and get healthy again. When the pandemic first hit, 
we knew just from our experience with floods and with Iniki and Eva that the first thing we needed to do was pull everyone together because it gets to be, you know, crazy with all the information out there. And now we've got social media. So we're trying to just control information so that people can go to a place where they are getting not only um, good, correct information, but they're also getting stories that are, are positive, that, you know, reminded that it's not all bad. There are people really out there working hard for everybody's benefit and, and telling their stories. So kawaiiforward.com is basically the website that we created to try to push in um, good information, good resources. We keep up on everything every day. Our um, website, uh, Diana Singh, who updates these, the website is there all the time. Anytime we get information and resources from the community, we verify it, and then up it goes. And then we use Kupa'a Kauai as our social media push out into the community, and then also to tell stories about how, you know, wonderful everyone's trying to be and, and trying to do the right thing, and that it really is, we're all in it together, and um, kupa'a, meaning, you know, it's this hold steadfast together, is the way that we can do this the best, and we've done it before, and we can do it again. We just need to follow what we've done in the past. So this website, koe4.com, go-to place for people to get information straight from the source, Who's using that site? Well, it comes out of our office, but we are pushing every single thing that the county is doing out of there. And we've been noticing that over the last um, probably month, we're getting more and more information. So we just recently looked at our sign-up list for people that just want to be notified every time we have an update, and that's like 700 people or something are signed up for that. So I think people are really getting um getting to understand that it's a great source for information and immediate information. The governments use it. Um, now that we have some of our grant funding out with the, that we did for the Kupa'a Kauai request for proposals, all of those um, vendors that we funded and are doing programs, they are pushing their information up through that website too. So that was one call that we had. When we first started in March, we did a quiet economic recovery strategy teams, and those teams kind of each of them came up with strategies for different sectors, economic sectors. And almost right through every single sector, the number one thing was please get out information and get it out in one place, you know, versus them running all over trying to find information in different places. So that we took to heart. And one of the first things that our team was able to do was to push that website out. The greatest ideas come from everybody else. So that was a great idea. And all we had to do was implement and it has, it's been a a great place for us. Everybody knows where to go. And um, we've kind of We've given it a logo, and it's people recognize it now. As part of the CARES funds, we actually had different pots of money. So um, early on, the administration kind of figured out, if we got this money, what would we do with it, and how would we split it up? In the RFP, we did um, basically food support services. So groups, nonprofits, I think there's like six or seven, have come in, and they are doing massive food support services not only to homeless, but to the elderly that are kind of trying to stay home more, um, to those in need, to the general public. And it's programs, uh, all different programs that happen from all the way from the North Shore all the way out to Kekaha. So the whole island is is covered. Um, We also have nonprofit economic loss support grants. And that basically was trying to help our nonprofits keep working and keep being our boots on the ground out there, supporting the community and and keeping everything running, because we know that there's a lot of panic out there. And as part of that, we also have a pot of money for mental health and domestic violence prevention because we know that with the stress 
comes a lot of, uh, they're home a lot, you know, you're not used to being with each other all the time. So we know that that was another area that we needed to pump some money into to support the efforts of other nonprofits out there that are doing that type of work. In addition, we also have a bunch of agricultural assistance grants. You can actually find all of these grants listed with a grantee, how much money they got, and basically what the program is, all up on the Kauai Forward website. And we also did a pot of funds for transforming tourism and economic diversification. So trying to look at looking forward, what's going on, how can we help turn the ship so that we are not in this place again, where in the future we're not so dependent on tourism that we just, you know, fall apart when something like this happens. Because conceivably, I mean, this could happen again. So we should not, we should not only plan to survive it, but we should plan to be better the next time this ever happens again. We also have the Rise to Work program, which is we did, I think, six or seven nonprofits. We pushed money out, and they are creating different jobs for their different areas. And it's something like 100 employees are now out there that are employed because of those nonprofits hiring people on to do different types of work. And it's everything from working, you know, for great groups like Malama Kauai, who has an Aloha Aina program. So they're putting people out there, getting farming going, to uh, people helping with food hubs. There's just a multitude of them. And then in addition to that, we're going to be trying to push out a very specific Rise to Work program, set up a hiring system to also hire other displaced workers for other nonprofits outside that weren't able to come in to the grant process. Also, the Hawaii Works program, which I know the state is trying to push out, and they have, I think, $10 million for the whole state. And I'm thinking they're going to try to hire about 200 jobs there. And I'm not sure exactly how it's going to end up divvying out to the different islands, but I know Kauai Economic Development Board here on Kauai is going to be our point person for making that whole program happen. So all these different programs are trying to set up hiring systems to try to bring people in that are ready to go back to work. Maybe it's not to the visitor industry. Some of them have training programs, so maybe in the future they want to switch their, you know, what they're doing. We're doing everything we can to try to get people to work now, and a lot of these programs have health insurance, which is a huge, a huge thing, I think, for most people is, you know, when they start losing their health insurance, especially during a pandemic, that's not a good thing. So we'd like to get as many people with health insurance. Tell me more about working with Kauai Community College as you anticipate what areas of training you need to provide to help displaced workforce. We have our typical areas that we know we are trying to grow. So, you know, we're trying to keep green. So we're trying to do green jobs. We're trying to do agricultural jobs, anything that um, will keep Kauai, Kauai, right? We want to be that. And, of course, we're always looking to technology. We know what's coming. We know what's coming down the line. So I know that Kauai Community College is working on that. We've also seen a need for jobs coming up in, you know, the changing of cesspools. With the law coming up that says that all cesspools have to change, we have a lot of cesspools here. So that's a whole art itself in getting that done, you know, switching from cesspool to septic. So I have no answers of exactly what that is. We're sitting down together trying to anticipate what's coming. And then, of course, trying to figure out where the funds might be coming from to help with that. We work closely with the Workforce Development Board and the American Job Center that we house here at the county. And they have the Workforce Development Division, who are basically our centerpiece. So when people um, need help with unemployment insurance or they need help um, changing their jobs or whatever, basically they go to that 
place that we have right here near in our building. And these people help them not only get onto Hire.net, which is the big system for finding a job, but also if they need to change their skills, they have funds specifically for helping with that new training. And they work directly with the Kauai Community College to keep anticipating what that training might be as you're moving forward by looking at the businesses that are coming in. You've mentioned unemployment. Even here at the station, we hear from like frustrated listeners who are saying, I've been trying to file my unemployment. I'm just having a hard time. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. No, our, our um, the workforce development people down here have the same the same um, issues. So they take the overflow of calls going to the unemployment insurance division. It was like we all know it was bad, and so they were trying to take the overflow of calls directing mm-hmm. people. Sometimes you know there's all these different dots that have to be checked off, and one of them sometimes the employer also has to respond. If one little social security number is off, that can cause a problem that has to take time to be resolved. So mm-hmm. I get, it. I mean, I know they're totally frustrated, but I can also see where apparently in the system there's a lot of ways for things to not quite go right. So I was so glad when I heard that the state was starting to really put bodies into um, trying to fix all of those systems. They do still over at Workforce Development Division help answer questions about that. Adele Manera is our head at that office, and they aren't the Unemployment Insurance Division. However, they know all the different gamuts of programs that are here, and so you can make one phone call and actually talk about several different things, everything from unemployment insurance to you know, possible training if you want to change your jobs to getting your resume online or even creating a resume. They do a lot of different work. They also work with other, other people like KCC and a lot of other programs like Hawaii Works and stuff out there that are trying to find people jobs. And at the same time, they also always invite businesses to come in. They're happy to help or guide them through making sure that they get their jobs listed properly on there so that they can make recommendations for people. Give me some examples of businesses that are posting. So we have definitely medical, but you need to have certifications to get in there. We have quite a few medical, even um, groups like Diagnostic Labs, they were advertising. Then we have things like Long's Drug Stores. I mean, people that are open and operating the grocery stores, they're operating. Those are the bigger areas. You'll find them, though, on the Hawaii.net site. That's a big one because they regularly advertise there anyway. It's, it's pretty much about medical. And right now we have all those, of course, other jobs that are coming out that are temporary, but we'll hold, hopefully hold people, at least them and their medical together, till we get to the end of the year and see where we are. And while we're going along, we're also you know, looking for other opportunities and, and other ways that we can hold hands with the state and, and the federal government to keep everybody going until... We can take a step out of this world that we're in. That was a conversation between Nalani Brun, the Kauai County's economic director, and the conversation's producer, Lillian Song. For links to Kauai pulling forward and to the Workforce Development Division, go to our conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we check in on how schools are doing as they work remotely. What's been your experience? Good? Bad? Color Talk Backline, 808-792-8217.
tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. 